How tempting is it to look back on your life, on history, on your experiences, and have that yearning, that sense of wanting to go back, to go back to, to how things were. Perhaps it was before things changed, before some tragedy uh, befell you or our country. It's easy, isn't it, to have rose-tinted spectacles and to think that everything in history was good and grand and great, and only if we could rediscover something of that, then our lives would be happy and full and prosperous again. As it turns out, in the Book of the Kings, in the reign of Solomon, things were pretty good in many respects. We have read, haven't we, on a Sunday and in our rooted groups, these statements, these observations, these summaries of how everything was plentiful, how there was wealth and richness and prosperity, that everybody ate the fruit of the vine under the shade of their own tree, and everything was happy and wonderful and glorious. And yet that was only part of the picture. That was only part of the story. Solomon, the wise, the great, the temple builder, was also Solomon, the fool. Solomon, the wicked. Solomon, the builder of many high places and altars and sites of false idol worship. What we read in the story of Solomon was not simply of prosperity, but prosperity at a price at a cost. There are records in his reign of the enforced labour, the slave labour that was utilised for these massive building projects. There's records of how many um, taxes and tributes various people had to bring to him just so that everything could be plentiful in his court and in his kingdom. It's fair to say at the end of it, we, we can look and we can assess Solomon achieved and built a lot, but it was at a heavy price, and not a price that he himself bore. We're in 1 Kings chapter 12 this morning, and it's the story of the pages of history turning from Solomon and his rule and reign onto the next chapter, the next king. And what we read is that they're desperate for things to be rolled back to how they were before Solomon. Chapter 12, verse 1 says this, Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all the Israelites had gone there to make him king. When Jeroboam, son of Nebat, heard this, he was still in Egypt, where he had fled from King Solomon, he returned from Egypt. So they, the people, sent for Jeroboam, and he and the whole assembly of Israel went to Rehoboam and said to him, Your father placed a heavy yoke on us, but now you, our new king, put on us a lighter yoke. Lighten the harsh labor and the heavy put yoke he put on us and we will serve you. Rehoboam answered, go away for three days and then come back to me. So the people went away. He wants time to consider. Can you see what they're asking for? They're asking in the midst of the 
prosperity and the plenty that is the overflow of Solomon's rule and reign, they're asking for things to go back. Before there were such high taxes, before people were carried off in slavery and forced to do certain jobs, they want things to be rolled back to how they were. And so we might ask ourselves while reading the story, what sort of king is Rehoboam going to be? Is he going to be the sort of king who continues to feed off, fester off the people, enriching himself at the expense of the little guy? Or is he going to be someone who in love and Solomon-esque wisdom choose the path which will lead to good for them, to rest in the midst of that prosperity? Rehoboam goes off and he doesn't want to make this decision on his own. He asks two groups of people and notice he does not ask. He does not inquire of the Lord. First of all, he consults with the the elders who had served his father, Solomon. How would you advise me to answer these people? He asked. And they say, well, look, if you today will be a servant to these people, not just a king, but a servant, serve them, give them this favorable answer. They will always be your people. They will always be your servants. The building work has been done. There's no need to go overboard. Here's this easy popularity, political win. Rehoboam, if you, if you do this, they will love you all the days of your life. But he's got another group of people that he wants to go and ask. He wants to go and ask his peers, the people that he's grown up around. They're not youngsters by any means. They're in their 40s at this point. But people who have just had it easy in his court and in his presence. And they tell him something completely different. What is your advice, he says to them? How should we answer the people who say to me, lighten the yoke that your father put on us? The young men who had grown up with him, they replied thusly, your father put a heavy yoke on us. But my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid a heavy yoke on you and I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. His friends tell him that rather than uh, gaining love from amongst the people, he should attempt to rule by power and fear. Don't show any sign of weakness. If you want to be respected, if you want to be remembered, if you want to be honoured, then you make life even harder. Forget rolling things back to how they were. Make it even more difficult. Sadly, that's the advice that Rehoboam takes. Verse 12, three days later, Jeroboam and all the people returned to Rehoboam as the king had said. And the king answered the people harshly. He rejected the advice given to him by the elders and he followed the advice of his peers. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. My father made your yolk heavy. I will make it even heavier. So the king didn't listen to the people. He didn't listen to God. He didn't even inquire of God. Because this turn of events actually was to fulfill what the Lord had said. That because of Solomon's sin, because of his turning his back on God, that the kingdom would be torn to pieces. 
It's interesting, isn't it? In this story, the language that is used, the hope that is there for the people of, of, a, of a new Moses, almost. Someone who would come before the king and beg for relief. Here, Rehoboam presents himself to be actually a new pharaoh. Someone who responds to that, that appeal for, for generosity and, and kindness and gentleness is to double down on the, the burden, to double down on the authority and the abuse and the rule. So what is the hope next then? Is it that, well, like in the story of Moses and Pharaoh, that this one who is coming from the Egyptian direction will, will, will rise up and unite the people in a new way and lead them through into a place of prosperity? Well, it says, verse 20, when the, all the Israelites heard that Jeroboam had returned, they decided to call him and to call him and set him as king over them. Only the tribe of Judah remained loyal to the house of David. There's a split. And when Rehoboam arrived in Jerusalem, he mustered the whole house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 fighting men to make war against the house of Israel and to regain the kingdom of Rehoboam, son of Solomon. They're on a, a pathway to civil war, not for the first time. There have been civil wars aplenty in the history of the judges, even during the time of David. Where's the hope? That they would be united, that they would be prosperous, that they would find that rest? It seems that all this is achieving is causing division and hurt and sadness. But maybe Jeroboam is the answer. Maybe Jeroboam, this one who has come up out of Egypt, this one who seems so reasonable, leading the people, this one who has the majority rule in terms of the numbers of tribes and the numbers of people, maybe he'll actually lead in a sensible direction and the folks will get just what they want. Freedom under this new Moses. Only that's not what happens. Verse 25, Jeroboam fortified Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. From there he went out and he built at Peniel. And he thought to himself, the kingdom is likely to revert back to this Pharaoh-like man, to revert back to the house of David. If these people that I am now king over continue to go up to the house of the Lord, to the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, They'll give their allegiance to the Lord. They'll give their allegiance to the king and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam. He's actually making a judgment about what human beings are like. He says, you know what? If these people continue to worship God, then there's no way that they can stay divided and separated from their brothers. If they continue to worship God properly and correctly, there's no way that they'll... Uh, think to, to not honour his king, his anointed one. So after seeking advice, this is what Jeroboam decides to do. Verse 28, the king made two golden calves. He said to the people, it's too much. It's too much for you to make your way over to Jerusalem all the time. So instead, here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. One he set up in Bethel, the other that he set up in Dan, 
and this thing became a sin. The people even went as far as Dan to worship there. Jeroboam built shrines on high places and appointed priests from all sorts of people, even though they weren't Levites. He instituted a festival on the 15th day of the 8th month. We don't have a new Moses here. We've got a new Aaron. Someone who willingly, wantingly, will lead the people astray, will lead the people into easy, self-serving idolatry. It's sad. It's sad that sin is multiplied on top of sin, that either choice, north or south, Rehoboam, Jeroboam, leads, in fact, to destruction. You look ahead, it's not a case of this guy's a bad guy, Rehoboam. No, he's the Pharaoh character. His rule and his reign is summed up like this, that all Judah under him did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They stirred up God's jealous anger more than their fathers had done. They set up for themselves high places, sacred stones, Asherah poles on every high hill and under every spreading tree. There were even male shrine prostitutes in the land. The people engaged in all the detestable practices of the nations that the Lord had driven out before Israel. It's just carnage. It's carnage everywhere as people seek to do their own thing, as pride and greed grip those in charge, as the people in general yearn for the good old days before, as Jeroboam wisely understands that folks will do anything for an easy life, even if that means sinning and sinning greatly. It's just an absolute mess. So where is the hope in all of this? We can't go back. Even if our rose-tinted spectacles weren't giving us a blurred picture of how it was before, because life wasn't great under Moses. Remember under Moses, the people who were freed, they wandered in the wilderness for decades. We can't go back even if our rose-tinted spectacles are blurring things. Because going back would mean going back even to the brokenness that we had then. In fact, when we try to go back, very often all we do is create more brokenness as in this story. We allow those who want to push ease and comfort and convenience on us, who are so willing to buy it, we let them take control. So where is the hope? We're called in Christ not to yearn for the good old days, but to hope in and want something greater than what went before. The people asked for a lighter yoke, a lesser burden. Brothers and sisters, what they're hoping for really is Jesus. Because Jesus is better than what's gone before. Not easier, but better. Think about all this language in the story to begin with, about laying things on people's shoulders, about burdens and yokes, and a price being paid in order to achieve something. Solomon's grandeur and greatness was on the backs, literally, of all his people. But here's how Jesus is presented to us in the scriptures. 
Surely he is someone who took upon himself our pain, that he is the one who bore our suffering. Peter puts it like this, that he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness, that by his wounds we have been healed. Jesus promised us a lighter yoke to those who are weary, to those who are burdened. He promises sweet rest like we've never known before. Something far greater than than is found in the history books. How is that possible? Because he is not Rehoboam, this great Pharaoh-esque figure. He's not Jeroboam, this Aaron-like one who is going to lead you into more sin. He's not even Moses. He is the one who is going himself to bury the, uh, bear the weight, to carry the weight, the burden, the cost of building the temple, of building the church, of building his people, the redeemed. Our hope should be in nothing less than the greatness of what Jesus is doing in his own strength, at his own cost. Don't we love how Paul put it in his letter to the Corinthians? That there was the rich one who didn't enrich himself all the more by taxing the poor, but there was the rich one, Jesus, rich in all things, who gave of those riches so that we could be filled up. There was the righteous one, good and holy and proper, without sin, nothing to separate the Son from the love of the Father who came and stood in our place, who shouldered the weight and the burden and the guilt and the penalty and the cost so that we could go free, so that we could be righteous in his place, so that we could be loved by the Father and the Son in the Spirit. That's our hope. Not for something that's gone before, rules-tinted, blurry-eyed, but for something greater that is purchased for us, that is given to us by this great King. Now, I have to say, though, don't I, that following Jesus is not the easy version. It is the lighter burden, but it's not the easier version. There's plenty of places we could go in the scriptures and we could learn that to choose Jesus is to choose the better path, but not the easier path. The path of Jesus following after him is a path that leads to greatness, to the greater. Think about how Jesus, as he walked, he set his face like fin to Jerusalem and, and to his lifting up, to his ascension, to his raising back up to glory and the, the ruling and the reigning over all the heavens and the earth. It wasn't an easy path that laid before him, was it? It was a path of rejection. It was a path of suffering. It was a path of death that led to glorious eternal life. And so, brothers and sisters, I tell you this, I encourage you this this morning. When we follow after Jesus, there is 
rest. There is peace. There is joy. There is gladness instead of grief and mourning. But that does not mean that it is the easy path. You see, ease and convenience and comfort in and of themselves are the tools of Satan, sin and this world to lead us away from what is best. Jesus called us to carry our crosses and to follow him. He bears the weight, but he still leads us down a path, a path where things aren't always easy. Things aren't always simple. Things aren't always as we would choose and put them together, but a path that does lead to what is best. So can I encourage you this morning, in whatever way it is that you're coming and you're viewing your life, you're viewing our world and you're yearning for something that has been, don't get stuck in the past. Don't get blurry-eyed and rose-tinted about the past. Don't choose the path of least resistance and ease and simplicity. Choose the greatest. Choose the better. Choose the true. Choose to put your hope in Jesus, who is making all things new again. Follow Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Put your hope your gladness and your peace in him and he will not let you down.